0: There's a bunch of ideas that I've been thinking about that I've been excited to kind of flesh out um, and and look at more myself, and uh, that's what we're going to deal with over the next three weeks, because uh, one of the most basic things that we need to concern ourselves with is how do we live out lifestyles of faith uh, in our world, Um, because there's lots of things we do as people of faith to distinguish ourselves. Some of them are very basic. We put bumper stickers on our cars, or we wear T-shirts that have some kind of a message on it. And those make us distinct, and people recognize those things about us. But uh, I think we all realize those are rather basic surface things. And uh, I I have come to see that uh, one of the clearest ways we embrace our faith and we are distinct in the world is the way that we act. Because uh, our behaviors are the evidence of our belief. And if what we believe is truly radical and diametrically opposed to the world around us, then it follows that our behavior is going to be markedly different uh, than the world around us. And so, over the next three weeks, I want to take a look at how our faith makes us distinct uh, from the world around us. We'll talk about what it means to be content in a world that is focused on consumption, and we'll talk about what it means to be gentle in a world that that deals in a currency of assertion and aggression. Uh, But this morning, uh, we're going to start by talking about what it means to have integrity in a rather relative world. So let me just pray to get us started here. Jesus, we thank you for this time. Uh, We thank you for uh, this body and this church. And we thank you that your word is life-giving and transformative, that it shapes us and changes us. And we pray that the time we spend in your word would make us different than when we arrived here today. So Holy Spirit, come, speak truth to us, give us teachable hearts and open souls, and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, when I was living in Los Angeles, I uh, uh, was re- one, spent one Sunday reading the Los Angeles Times Magazine. And uh, one of the columns in here really caught my eye because it was entitled... The L.A. Advice Guy, and uh, it talked about the fact that, uh, in the introduction, that uh, uh, advice columns seem to be the domain of women, and so this was attempting to break the feminine stranglehold of advice columns, and also provide up-to-date, relevant advice that was, uh, I believe the author said, firmly schooled in the ethics of Los Angeles. So I thought, well, I live in Los Angeles, so this might be very helpful to me. So, I read a letter that uh, a guy, uh, somebody wrote to the LA Advice Guy. He wrote, Dear LA Advice Guy, Every year, the advertising agency I work for gives bonuses to those responsible for the most successful campaigns. The managing partner congratulates recipients by personally calling them down to his office and handing them their bonus check. While none of my campaigns were made, or even the slightest bit successful, I still received a $5,000 bonus, but did not get called down by the partner. Is it wrong to keep the money, and should I tell my boss about this mistake? Signed, DR in Glendale. Now, on the surface, as, as, uh, as it probably did with you, this did not strike me as all that complex and ethical situation. DR got money that he or she was not entitled to, and the resolution was fairly straightforward. But... Bring on the L.A. advice guy and his ethics." He said, Dear Dr., a similar situation happened years ago when I, too, worked in advertising. A client paid for the same services twice. I wondered if I should say something, but I realized that that would put the person responsible for sending the second check in a very difficult position. Since the client was a large multinational company, the amount overpaid was actually a drop in the bucket. And the wonderfully inept person in Accounts Payable might have been sacked if I had decided to nitpick. So I kept the money, as they tell doctors, do no harm. In your case, forcing you to watch while your more successful and productive co-workers are called in and given bonuses seems a particularly cruel humiliation. (laughs) Not to mention a very inexact procedure full of potential human error. What if your boss simply forgot to call you down? What if his assistant or the payroll clerk made a mistake? Would you want to risk embarrassing someone, or even worse, costing them their job by bringing this to light? I say keep the money and think of it as an incentive to work harder next year." (laughs) Well, I think when I read this I kind of had to collect myself because I am not sure I would have seen this situation in this way. Because essentially, DR can keep the money and he or she can actually feel kind of, uh, you know, morally justified in doing so. And like they're actually taking the high road by not returning $5,000 they weren't entitled to. And, and it, would, it would be one thing if this was Mad Magazine I was reading, but it's the LA Times Magazine, where this is a writer of some education and pedigree uh, who is putting forth a rather uh, eloquent and well-constructed argument to construct this ethic or this rationale, Uh, to justify something that we think is, that we would all kind of readily look at and say, boy, this isn't, it's not even more ethically questionable, it's ethically wrong. And I use this example to, uh, this morning, to make sure that we start with a clear picture of our world and how it views matters of ethics and integrity. Because I could have taken any number of examples, but suffice it to say, we live in a world where it can be pretty common to come up with your own set of rather subjective ethics. We can look at our situation, and in some cases, this may be rather crude, or in other cases, like I just read, uh, we can give things a pretty hefty spin and use lots of words to where where these these ethical distortions look rather refined and informed. Um, You know, it seems like uh, we're always in the middle of a political campaign, and uh, I was kind of following the one uh, that we just had. And I think political campaigns can bring some of this into a unique light, because uh, in one of the commercials that I saw probably about 60 times a week there was a candidate for an office who claimed uh, among or or at least strongly inferred among the uh, campaign claims that they had helped balance the budget and I don't know if you read the news at all but if you live in California I don't think there's a state county municipal or city budget that is not going through drastic cuts jobs being eliminated there's deficits in money there's not enough income coming in and in light of that, I mean, I just had to scratch my head thinking, how can anybody make the claim that they balanced a budget? And when you looked at it a little more closely, you realized, well, it wasn't exactly kind of saying that, you know, I balanced the budget, but it sure gave the impression that here was this kind of fiscal wreck, and this individual came in and made everything sound again. And there's a lot of energy when we get in political campaigns that's, that's, that's focused on words, that's focused on what candidates say and what they don't say. They can take unfortunate gaffes and, uh, and mistakes and miscues and spin away outbursts so that they don't look so bad. And they can even push things to a point where things may actually kind of be explained in a way opposite than one would, would normally take them. And it can get really confusing to the point where you, event, you eventually just uh, start to wonder, what can you take for fact and what can you not trust? Um, And this is the world in which we're challenged to live out our obedience to Jesus. It's a culture where there are a lot of words. And words sometimes don't mean what they apparently should. But politics isn't the only place where this happens, and probably more uh, relevant to our situation, obviously, is that as we navigate our daily lives, we are confronted with similar situations. We are tempted to spin words in a certain way and to craft our communication with carefully chosen words, and to leave ourselves appropriate loopholes in case we need them somewhere down the line. Words are not absolute, they're not necessarily consistent, and truth can be very situational instead of being constant. We live in a relative world. Well, in this, to this, I want to take a look at what uh, Jesus says about a world that may have questionable standards about integrity. I want to look at Matthew 55. Uh, verses thirty-three to thirty-seven, brief section in the Sermon on the Mount, and in this in this section, as it flows, Jesus is basically going through some conventional wisdom, different points of conventional or trusted wisdom, and turning them a little bit on end, challenging them a little bit, and 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 uh, and uh, uh, perhaps perhaps challenging some of the conventions that the hearers have, and so here he addresses some conve- conventions that may sound similar to what I just described to you. Matthew five thirty three reads, Again, you have heard it said to people long ago, Do not break your oaths, but keep, keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Well, as is the pattern in this section, Jesus starts by quoting the conventional morality of the day. And uh, when he says, you know, what, what you, have, you have heard it said, he is not giving a direct quotation of the Old Testament, but it would be kind of within the rabbinic writings, it would be kind of the trustworthy teaching that they would have. It says, don't swear falsely and keep your promises to the Lord. And, uh, you know, this, on the surface, does not sound like a flawed code of ethics. It does not sound dated or decrepit in any way. Uh, You know, don't lie and make sure you do what you say you're going to do. But it's what Jesus does next that calls the whole way of doing things into question. Because Jesus mentions four different things that people swear oaths to. To God, to heaven, to Jerusalem, to earth, their own heads. It's more than four, I think. And we might look at this in our present day and wonder, what is he talking about? Uh, Because there's some cultural context and background here. But I would say their culture, even though it was 2,000 years ago, is very similar to our culture. Because we swear by things. We say things that intensify, in an attempt to intensify what we're saying. We say, I swear I'll do that, cross my heart, hope to die, you know, pinky promise, whatever. You know, we kind of have these ways of, if we really, we really want people to believe what we're saying, we will add something in intensifying it. And so in their way, there were certain things that they would, they would swear to, you know, that would really kind of give extra weight to what they were saying. It would show commitment or that there was true conviction there, you know, swearing by God or by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And uh, the problem that Jesus is addressing is also in the rabbinic writings of the day is that you actually find lengthy arguments between rabbis and scholars about which oath would be more binding than another oath. You know, I mean, it's, it's very astute and very informed, but it's really, you know, nothing more than kids on the playground saying, well, I double-dog dared you, so that's more important than just the single dare, you know, double, triple, whatever. And as they start saying, well, is it more, you know, is it more binding to swear by the temple? You no, know, well, if you swear by God himself, that trumps the temple. And if you start stratifying oaths, and you start making one oath more binding than the next, what you're essentially doing is, at the bottom, making some oaths that are pretty easy to get out of, that aren't as binding. And uh, so essentially you end up with very complicated terms and an involved rubric of ethics uh, and communication where people can give the appearance of telling the truth through swearing and big oaths when they're essentially allowing themselves to get off by semantics on the back end. And in the teaching that Jesus is giving here, in radicalizing this by saying simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, Jesus is calling this whole thing for what it is. It's a confounding, confusing mess that makes it really hard to figure out who's telling the truth and who's not. What, kind of, what standard of integrity is there? And that's what Jesus is cutting to the core of. And so he gives a very simple way to address this. While we may live in a world that causes us to add things to our communication and beckons us to intensify what we're saying, Jesus is cutting way back and saying, uh, you know, be very straightforward. Be very simple. I mean, I just noticed it this morning in the song we sung that, you know, just said, Jesus, I'll let my words be few. I'm so in love with you. And I realized, wow, that's exactly kind of, you know, that, that's very profound, you know. Don't need to add much to that. And the people listening to this could probably you know, have, have you know, all, had all kinds of responses. You know, there are some that could have simply said, well, Jesus, so all we're supposed to say is yes and no. Well, what are we supposed to talk about then? <laughs> Our conversations will get very, very short. And some people could have written Jesus off as very naive and very uh, idealistic, figuring, you know, this is very quaint and homespun wisdom, but does it really work if we're trying to live out our lives in the real world? Because the simplicity of what Jesus is saying, if we contemplate applying it to our own lives, is, is rather unsettling. One of my favorite people in the entire world was my Uncle Rixie. Uncle Rixie died uh, last February, just a few months after turning 100. And uh, the neat thing about Uncle Rixie is actually he and I are not blood relations, but he was my dad's freshman history professor in college. And he was the kind of guy that had a very hard time with acquaintances. You quickly became friends, and if you became friends, you became family. And so as my grandparents were either deceased or uh, in Europe, Uncle Rixie became my grandfather and would come to our house for, for holidays and just became a very special friend to us. And, uh, Uncle Rixie, you also need to know, he bled Stanford Red, or Stanford Cardinal, we would say. Uh, he was a graduate of Stanford, he was a professor at Stanford, he was administrator, he was the Dean of Admissions, and uh, a die-hard alum, and so basically, uh, Uncle Rixie, there was probably no phone that, would, that he couldn't get through at Stanford for you if you needed something. Which, probably you're thinking, so that's how he got into Stanford, I figured it out. <laughs> he didn't look that bright. But one of the things that, you know, because I also knew about Uncle Rixie was he really liked me. And, you know, there was, and and every now and again, you play things like that to your advantage. And it was especially something I like to take advantage of when Stanford had a really good basketball team and they were coming to play UCLA at Pauley Pavilion. Very difficult ticket to get, and I had a connection. And so I called Uncle Rixie in January and said, hey, Rixie, it's, you know, February 7th or something. Stanford is coming to play at Pauley Pavilion. Do you think I could get four tickets? Sure, I'll get you four tickets. They'll be at Will Call. And uh, the other thing you need to know about Uncle Rixie is um, he, he was actually born before there were telephones, and he lived all the way to 100, and he still on his dying day just thought, ooh, phone calls are so expensive. So, you know, you'd call him and he'd be like, oh, it'd be like a telegram shipped ashore. It'd be kind of like, yes, tickets, fine, bye, expensive, you know, hang up. So that's the way it always was with Uncle Rixie. And so I called him in January, and I called my friends, and I said, guys, I got tickets to the Stanford game. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And, you know, but since you have people making plans, and this is a tough ticket, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I could use a little more assurance here that those tickets are really going to come through than just walking up to Will Call on the day of the game. So I thought of a couple different excuses during the month that ensued, to call up Uncle Rixie just to check in, just see what's going on. And even though he was 96 at the time, uh, he caught on to me pretty quickly. And one day, probably like a week before the game, I called, he heard it was me, and, you know, I started to say, so just wondering how you do. doing. He cut me short and he said, you're calling me about the tickets, aren't you? And I said, well, Uncle Rixie, you know, you don't like the phone, you don't hear well, I just want to be sure that everything's like, okay, stop for a second. Here's what I remember. You called me, you asked me for four tickets to the basketball game. I said yes. Is that what you remember? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, well, then there wouldn't have been any reason to call you. Click. <laughs> sure enough, tickets were at will call. But, you know, life was very simple for Uncle Rixie. When he said yes, it was a yes when he said no it was a no and there really wasn't the need for any other language or assurance to take place in that interaction and this is convicting to me because I realize what was evidenced by that interaction my own need for more assurance than someone's simple word and what do I feel sometimes when I'm communicating to people that I need to add some kind of assurance that I'm going to follow through that I'm going to be a person of integrity and carry through on what I said I was gonna do. And I need to get used to simply living my life by yeses and nos and not require anything else and not require that of other people that I'm in relationship with. The point that Jesus is making is not to get distracted by shades uh, shades of integrity or statements of varying degrees of truthfulness. He pushes us to simplify our language and attach commitment to every single one of our statements. And that is the hallmark of invariable honesty and integrity, because I think the reality is, is the more words we use, the more confusing our communication gets. I mean, if we think about police interrogations, you know, they last a long time because the longer somebody talks, the, the, the more chance there is of uh, disconnects coming through and lies coming through. But separate from being interrogated by the police, in our day-to-day life, why is this so challenging to us? Because I don't think any of us, or you know, probably few of us, have a struggle with being pathological liars and being completely deceitful. And I think we can all look at that and we can say, you know, okay, I understand. You're not supposed to tell inflated lies. But yet, we have difficulty sticking to the truth and to simple language. We tend to construct our own complex webs of words that can sometimes obscure truth and and I don't know if I have all the answers to this but I think I have some reasons to it, reasons why I do it. First thing is, is I act out of my own insecurity a lot, that I feel sometimes like my word isn't enough and so I have this impulse to add something to what I say, to make it sound more believable. I'll say, I promise you I'll do this, I swear I'll do this. I really 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 mean this and it's acute. cute it's an easy little habit but Jesus ended his scripture by saying anything more than this is from the evil one that's convicting to me that means I'm straying away and even by my little innocent kind of naive habits I am letting something enter into my communication that is taking me away from from uh, from godliness and from integrity And, like I already said, in general practice, there are times where I force people to do that for me. I lead them down that road as well, because I check up on them, and I say, are you sure you're gonna do it? You said you were gonna be there. Are you gonna be there? Um, I think that in social relationships, uh, uh, we can be tempted, and I can be tempted, to distort the truth. I had a boss uh, down in LA who, I would say, you know, I don't think I would ever have lied to him. But there were certainly times where I was asked to give a report on what I was doing where I might choose my words very carefully to get him to view an event a little bit differently than it had happened. And maybe to think of me a little bit more favorably and productively, or more productive than, than the actuality was. And so I, got, I realized kind of I was getting pretty good at, at, at giving elaborate explanations and there are times when, you know, even in just simple social situations, you know, we can, there are kind of rather insignificant things that we'll get pushed on. People ask us, you know, do you like the dinner I made for you? Or, you know, do you like the jacket I'm wearing? Well, you know, that's a little bit hard sometimes, and we can get uncomfortable in the questions that we answer. But, you know, these are rather benign circumstances. But the problem is, is, and, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is kind of haranguing us over those but the danger is, is when people are asking us more significant questions and when we're communicating on more, on more salient and vital points, that uh, do, we, do we craft communication in a certain way to obscure the truth and to obscure what we really feel? I, I care what people think about me. And so there's a lot of times where I throw little things into my conversation to give a distinct impression that I want to portray that may be totally different from the point at hand but I may throw in a name drop a little name of somebody I know why because that might make them give me a different stature than is the reality I'm kind of trying to kind of get people I'm being very kind of uh, strategic in the words I'm throwing out to project an image and again anything beyond a simple yes and a simple no is from the evil one and The fact is, is these behaviors are instinctive to me. Nobody needed to teach me them. I probably could pick on my kids and tell you stories of things they've done. Because the fact is, is that's the way the world conditions us. That's part of our instinct. And that's the world that we live in. And Jesus' words cut into that and say, wait a minute, you need to look very carefully at your conventional way of doing things for what it is and make sure that your belief in me and that your obedience to me marks you as distinct from everything else around you. Um, I can think of a, you know, I had a friend um, who was a huge mentor to me when I started following Jesus. For about 10 years, really was uh, the man who uh, kind of had the most formative influence on my discipleship and coming to Christ. And about 10 to 12 years into the relationship, it came out that he had been living a double life, and he had gotten into some unfortunate and sordid sexual immorality. And as we looked at it, we realized, and as we started, this started to come unclear, we started to realize that this wasn't just a single episode, but as we look back over the years that we knew each other, kind of, that there was just this pattern. There were certain times where explanations just didn't add up, and there were certain kind of circumstances where you thought, well, that was a weird situation. Well, where he, where was he, and the story didn't really line up, and I just kind of shrugged it off. And what we realized was that it wasn't just the unfortunate actions, which were grievous in and of themselves, but what had come up around them was this, this, this web of words that got so confusing and so kind of confounding that you ended up listening to them, and you really just had to listen to every word he said and say, now, are, are you telling me the truth? Because I just don't know what to believe anymore. We had a um, discussion one time about, you know, as we were kind of trying to come to terms with this, about just you know, some biblical passages on sexual immorality, and if you're talking about sexual immorality, you eventually get to Leviticus, where there's kind of a laundry list of things, and the term that you see again and again and again is abomination, 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 and I remember discussing this with him, and what kind of made my jaw drop a little bit was um, that his angle, which he, and this was a highly educated man, the angle that he came back with was, you know, maybe you're defining abomination wrong. Because, you know, if you say abomination is repugnant to God, it's, it has nothing to do with God, yeah, that's really troublesome. But what if we define abomination as more irritating, or it's annoying to God? It's something that God would rather you not do, but, you know. And I said, wow. So that's where this relationship has gone now, to where common definitions of words don't mean what everybody, you know, what the rest of the population would define them as. And so what you look at here is, again, not that, the, not that there's any sin that is not redeemable, but what happened around it was this complete erosion of integrity and truth that made for the relationship very difficult, if not impossible. Because the more words he used, uh, the, less I, the less credibility I could place in any single thing he said. And it is important that we realize that we look at little things and we don't dismiss them as being as insignificant and inconsequential because that's where they all end up. Um, Because we can't have relationships with other people if there's not a foundation of believability or integrity. If I think back on my marriage there were some vows that Trish and I made and they were some very clearly worded uh, um, easy to follow things that are bedrock and if I had to go back and started thinking wow maybe those words didn't mean what I thought they meant, then it really starts to, it would start to erode the relationship and, and, and be a detriment to it if I f- figured out that some things were only part true or if some of the words meant different things than she was thinking at the time. And um, so the biggest implication for us as we navigate this world really is in terms of relationships because the Christian faith is something we do in community it is not something that we do, that we do alone and we can't grow together and the kingdom can not advance uh, if we don't have the ability to form genuine relationships with one another it can only happen if we're simple people of integrity um, back again just before I got married a group of uh, friends took me on a bachelor weekend and uh, at one point, we were sitting together and we were talking about marriage and relationships. And someone asked uh, Reuben, my best man, you know, for some marital insight and you know insights he'd gleaned from his marriage. And uh, one of the th- questions the person asked is, "So, it's, you know, tell us what you like about your wife." And without even thinking, he came back and she said, "She's simple." And I think we all kind of gasped a little bit because you know, wow, that sounds a little bit like an insult. And but he went on to say, you know, complexity is really overrated as a personality trait. I mean, he said, it's fun when you're dating to kind of figure somebody out and all their mysteries and their complexities. But he said, let me tell you, when you get married, simple is really good. And, and you know, his wife's a remarkable woman. But he says, you know what, I, I know she's going to do what she says she's going to do. I know that she's telling me the truth. She's straightforward. She's direct and I just really appreciate that because it it just provides a security and a foundation in his relationship. Um, You know, a few years back, there was this movie, Liar, Liar, with Jim Carrey, which I I think, you know, if you saw it, you got a kick out of it because it was a very vivid description of what it means to be unequivocally committed to telling the truth, that there's this dad who's let his son down and the son finally just wishes, I wish my dad would just tell me the truth. And in a very kind of hysterical portrayal, You start to see you know at how hard it is for this guy to tell the truth because just you know it's it's a lie a minute and some of them are very polite things where people are asking him you know opinion but you realize wow i sure would hate to be the focus of that kind of a movie where somebody was looking at my life under a microscope the words i said and really seeing if there was absolute commitment and conviction to truth in what i said because we can look at this and we can say you know what Jesus is nitpicking, he's getting into the little things. And I would say that is absolutely true. It's the little things that, 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 that display our conviction and our commitment to our behavior. Uh, in World War II, as the allies moved across Europe, uh, it was a very difficult, drawn out campaign, the weather was very difficult too. But surprisingly, the thing that put more soldiers out of battle, was not gunshot wounds or shrapnel or anything like that. The largest number of World War II uh, casualties in the European campaign can be attributed to a condition known as trench foot. And that was basically where these guys, footwear was not what it is today, but these guys were walking, they were in the mud, their feet were wet, and basically prolonged exposure to to moisture and, and toil on your feet would just cause their feet to get swollen and infected and inflamed and more guys got sent away from the front lines because of bad feet than anything else. And so what the commanders did was they drilled foot care into their soldiers. Uh, You had a pair of socks, every night, no matter how how far you had marched or what you had done, you had to take off your shoes, you had to dry your feet, you had to take care of them, and then you had to have a pair of dry socks to put them on. In fact, there were accounts, G.I. said, that it was more important to keep your socks dry than it was to keep your ammunition dry, and there were times if you know, these big burly GIs would sit in the train, if one guy was really struggling with it, they would take turns rubbing each other's feet just so that they wouldn't succumb to trench foot. It seems like a very trivial little insignificant detail, but the impact of trench foot was enormous to the forces. And in terms of battle readiness, commanders realized that it is the attention and the vigilance over a little detail like that that made a difference in the battle. And when it comes to our approach to the truth, I imagine it's only a very small percentage of the time that we are dealing with out-and-out lies. You know, Jesus could have just just preached and said, you know, you heard it said, keep your oaths, do what you say you're going to do. Let's just keep that one there. Good, good point. Everybody do that. You know? But no, because I think what he realized is is that our battle with integrity lies not so much in these major kind of, uh, you know, cataclysmic lies, but in the day-to-day conviction and vigilance uh, to remain truthful and, and upright in our statements. And in a world where there is so much distortion and so much added to the words that we say and so many words said in general... It's this simplicity and this attachment to very simple statements that marks us as people who are distinct. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you, and uh, we just are so grateful for you, and we come before you challenged in our behavior. Uh, I pray for us as a people that we will be vigilant in our adherence to the truth, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict, and that our behavior would mark us as distinct. Let us be people who can be counted on, people who do what they say. Let us be people who are, uh, who are vigilant in matters of integrity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.